0: This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak, I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, DC. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with Dr. Peter Fever, who is a professor in the Stanford School of Public Policy at Duke University and who runs their Duke program in American Grand Strategy, Duke University. They discussed Dr. Fever's new book, Thanks for Your Service, which analyzes the public confidence in the U.S. military, the implications on public policy, national defense, and the ongoing politicization of the armed forces. Dr. Peter Fever, welcome to Reaganism. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. You are professor of political science and public policy at Duke. You're here today because your latest book recently came out called Thanks for Your Service. The Causes and Consequences of Public Confidence in the U.S. Military. Congrats on the book, Peter. Tell me what brought you to write this book.
1: Well, I'm really playing off of uh, something I wrote 25 years ago with a colleague named Paul Gronke, where we looked at public confidence in the military in the late 90s, and we said it was uncertain. It was high but brittle. Mm. And we it was high in the wake of Desert Storm, but we looked at the under the pillars that undergirded and we said they're likely to crack, and we expected public confidence in the military to drop. And if you put a pin in a time series uh, analysis of public confidence in the military, right when we made that prediction, which was about September 10th, 2001, and you see, public confidence went up after we made that prediction and stayed high for the next 20 years or so. And so about five years ago, Jim Golby, uh, who's a person I've collaborated with extensively in, on these topics, he, he and I said, let's, let's look at why I was wrong. You know, <laughs> public confidence seems to remain stubbornly high. So we started the project together and this book is the result, final result of that. And of course, the irony is the conclusion of this book is that public confidence is high but hollow which sounds an awful lot like brittle, I've <laughs> reached the same argument. In the last two years, public confidence in the military has declined, two, three years. Uh, and so some of the things that I thought was gonna happen in the late 90s and then didn't because we went to war are happening now uh, as we are leaving the war frame. And of course, a lot of other things are happening as well. But the, the short answer is I set out to write this book to find out why I was wrong before.
0: And you found out uh, you were just correct, uh, but it, it just, just took a little longer. ahead of my time. Ahead of your time. <laughs> I was just
1: 20, 25 years ahead of my time.
0: But whether you call it hollow or brittle, I think there's certain continuity to your concerns and your assumptions about uh, the American people and and what drives their, their trust and confidence. I want to get into all of that. Um, but give me a sense of uh, what surprised you most, perhaps, um, as you looked at this, um, you kind of, you wrote this knowing that, you know, you're, you had probably had a sensibility as to why your prediction back in September 10 2001, uh, didn't quite play out nine 11 course, the wars in Iraq, and Afghanistan, and it just totally changed the, the, the context prior to, uh, but as you go you went into research and it's exhaustive and the polling and the questions, I mean, it's really, uh, uh quite an accomplishment and congrats, what kind of data did you see in there that you didn't anticipate finding.
1: So there were uh, two ask, two things that I would flag here. One has to do with uh, the hollowness aspect. Public confidence is hollow, I would argue, in part because the long-term props undergirding it are eroding, we'll get to that in a moment, and in part because it's propped up by something that political psychologists call social desirability bias. And I expected to find some of the evidence of the latter, but the at least according to the survey, there's quite a fair bit of social desirability bias. That's when a respondent gives an answer they think that the poster wants to hear rather than their real. Yeah, you truers.
0: you get this later in the book, but let, let let's just take a minute or two to unpack that. Yeah, it's a wonderful I, as I read that in some ways it made me feel like this is good. Like it's nice when people have the right instincts sort of thing. Right. right? And so as I understand social desirability, you're just you're about to explain it. Right. It's where people think, okay, I'm supposed to be a supporter of the military. I am supposed to have confidence and trust in this institution. And that's the kind of the, the correct thing to say.
1: Right. In part, because everybody else seems to have high confidence in the military, right? It. The American public doesn't know much about the military at all, but the one thing they do know is that other people have high confidence in the military, Uh, and that's true. It's even true today with confidence declining. It hasn't declined as much for the military as for other institutions, so it's still true today. Therefore, people kind of know it's the correct answer, and yeah, it's better for, you know, political correctness to move better for those like you and me, who who want a strong military and want a military that's capable of commanding the confidence and the respect of the American people, it's better that the political correctness pressure is in this direction. But that's a hollow prop, because if a permission space develops where you can suddenly criticize the military and that becomes politically acceptable, then folks who didn't really have confidence now find it possible to reveal their true uh, feeling. So, Got it. This, so
0: it could swing quite easily if, if the conditions allowed for it.
1: Right. It So this survey technique was designed to capture things like uh, latent racism. So people who are hold racist thoughts, but know they're not supposed to say that to a, a survey uh, sur, a pollster who's asking them. But of course, if they suddenly are in a setting where they, they're allowed to express that view, it comes to the surface. And I mm-hmm. think Part of the decline that we've seen in the last couple of years is a change in that permissive space. So, it, it, for one segment of the population, it's now okay to criticize the military in a way that it wouldn't have been even five years ago, yeah. ten years ago.
0: We're, we're going to get that in just a second, and 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 Do talk, that surprised me. I, yeah. I knew we'd find a little
1: bit. We found it as high as seven to twenty-five points, and that's much higher than I expected.
0: Fascinating. All right, so we'll, we'll get that in a minute. Uh, but before we jump into the military, I would love for you to contextualize the military's place as an institution, re- relevant or relative, excuse me, to other institutions. Uh, think about the U.S. Right. Congress, um, the Supreme Court, uh, law enforcement—you know, the sorts of institutions that the presidency. Um, when you're taking these surveys, or you know, you're generally going to lump together to see how military. Racks and stacks relative to others. So contextualize where the military fits in, and uh, our experience here at the Reagan Institute, our survey, you know that they outperform all other institutions. Um, but talk a little bit about that and kind of how that makes you think about the military.
1: All other federal institutions. So small businesses, so uh, small businesses, that rates uh, fairly high. And it's not often asked on. The same polls, but the U.S. Postal Service, believe it or not, is also ranks uh, relatively high. But the major institutions of American politics, the Supreme Court, the Congress, the presidency, bureaucrats uh, generally, those kinds of, um, you know, major federal, uh, federal law enforcement even, all of those actors score low relative to the military. Uh, and confidence in everybody has declined. So all of them have gone down, but, but the military has remained as the tide is going out for all of them. The military remains at the top. When I started in this business in the Mm nineties, the, there were two at the top, the military and the Supreme court. And so I would always say the military and the Supreme court are held in high esteem, but not the other. Institutions. Let's stick the with. Let, let's dropped. stick with.
0: Yeah, First, Supreme yeah. dropped a lot. Let's stick with that for a moment, even though it's not the the focus of your great book. Thanks for your service, which you can be purchased on on Amazon and any other place where you get books. There we go. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll do that a couple more times, Peter, uh, throughout the discussion. But it seems to me that perhaps there might have been a moment where political correctness dictated that people should say they support the Supreme Court, kind of taking the conversation we started with. Right. And, and that was a norm, even though maybe it was hollow and then our politics and our national conversation allowed maybe starting from the Bork confirmation and certainly beyond to criticize the court. And then you see it's, it's, in, it's had this, uh, this fall, uh, is, is that your assessment of things? And you know, certainly if we think in the news today, uh, with the ProPublica uh, assaults on whether it's uh, justice Thomas or justice Alito, um and certainly you know you've had um similar uh, critiques you know in the other direction politically uh, it all seems to drive to the american people having a, a lower estimation and uh um, less confidence and trust in the supreme court
1: in the 90s our th- the theory that i and others were advancing was that the supreme court and the military remained high in public esteem and congress was low because the Supreme Court and the military were viewed as above and outside of partisan politics, whereas Congress is quintessentially a partisan institution. And it's always described as, you know, what percentage Republican, what percentage Democrat. If that's hardwired into the way the public views the mo- Congress. It's partisan. Likewise, the president nominally elected to by everybody, but clearly a member of one party or the other. Traditionally, the Supreme Court and the military were considered nonpartisan over the last 25 years, though, the Supreme Court has increasingly taken on a partisan cast and now is regularly described as, you know, uh, six Republicans, three Democrats or whatever. Uh, And the more partisan it gets, the more people view it as the more partisan it is perceived to be, the more uh, negative it's held and that was viewed as a warning to the military do not develop a partisan cast and in the late 90s there was some worry that the military was it was increasingly identifying with the Republican Party, its disaffection with the Clinton administration and an increasing willingness of the all-volunteer force to sort of reflect their uh, political their partisan uh, perspective that historically the military had been independent, but increasingly they had a, aligned with one of the parties, Republican Party, there was a concern it might become partisan, and then public confidence will go down. In this book, we see evidence of some of that, but the stories, it's even worse than what I just described. Tell us why. Well, uh, that is because the public um, is not a very good umpire about Mm. civil military best behaviors. So nerds on civil military relations like myself and others, we've developed a long list of do's and don'ts. And whenever we have a chance to talk to the military or civilian leaders, we say, here are your list of do's and don'ts, follow these rules, and you'll be adhering to best practices in civil military relations. The problem is, the public does not know those norms, hasn't really thought about it. And if you prompt the public to think about it they don't give the correct answer and when it comes to partisan politics they'll say yeah we don't want the military to be partisan but when you probe what they mean by that the public says the military is partisan when they agree with my partisan opponents
0: yeah so give an example this is because there's so much of this flying around right now you know from uh this Concern on the right about wokeness in the military. Concern on the left, radicalism, and you know uh, this this racist element uh, in the military to you know uniform um, general officers and flag officers engaging in political activity or being with political you know next to politicians to retired officers so give us a sense give me an example of where you know the dynamic you just describes is playing out today
1: well you could go back further uh, to say um when trump asked the military to deploy to the border to defend the border was that a legitimate military mission well reasonable people can argue about it, certainly defending the border is a legitimate military mission. Was that the best use of the active force? Uh, did it make sense to mobilize a guard to do that? Uh, it sure felt like a political stunt. You know, you, you can Reasonable people can debate it. But here's the point. Republicans viewing that thought that's the military behaving as they ought to. Democrats would say, no, 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 that's the military being engaged in partisan politics. So even though the military was obeying a legal order from the president, yeah, from to a Democrat, that looked like a partisan The, the
0: border is a politically charged issue, immigration policy. And so once right, you, right, right. you you insert the military, then it's gonna either lead one to conclude they're being partisan or one just to say no, they're they're fulfilling their duty. And and then the right White House example. changes hands. Democrats
1: right. come in and say, Okay, now we want you to do less of that and more of this, this. And now the Democrat respondents say, yeah, that's the military doing what it's supposed to do. And that Democrats and Republicans say, no, 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 that's the military engaging in partisan. Well,
0: let's break this up and talk to all the different elements of it now. Uh, As you know, the Reagan Institute does a annual Reagan National Defense Survey. You've uh, been helpful to us and give us advice and feedback over the years. We're grateful for that Uh, in November 2022. So approaching a year ago, not quite there yet. Found that only 48% of Americans had a great deal of trust and confidence in the military. Uh, what was eye-opening or significant it was down 22 points uh, from just five years ago. So, uh, you know, over it was 70% now 48%. Actually, over it was really a period of four years when it happened because it flattened out between 2021 and 2022. Um, so, you know, the troops on the border example, Peter. You know, that's that's been around for a long time. I mean, you you have right. you had. Uh, dynamic where president Bush was doing the same. And then actually president Obama did the same, right? It was viewed differently uh, given right. where each president was on, on the immigration issues, but there seemed to be, and, and it never really impacted. And it was always kind of a charged political issue, not, not to dismiss your example. That was a good example. But, but I guess what I'm trying to get at is over this period between say 2017 uh, and 2021, 2022 uh, president Trump's in office, we see this huge decline uh 2016 2020 election G- give me your take and, and 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 what your research in the book tells you about this particular moment in time and this precipitous decline you've been looking at you've you said at the outset it was always hollow but something happened to expose its hollow support
1: yes uh it's not hollow all the way through i mean i think there is a a fundamental uh, reservoir that is legitimate pride in in a military institution that is genuinely world class you know first in class world class so i don't want to overstate the hollowness but but i think that the military needs to be careful not to drink their bath water when they're they tell themselves repeatedly that they're the best trained best equipped best you know fighting force in history yes that's true don't don't rest on those laurels right and think that you you don't have to worry and let me give a shout out to the Reagan poll. It's it's a it's a it's a very useful contribution to the debate, um, and I particularly admire your dominance of the press coverage. You you know, as, as someone working in the you know laboring in obscurity in the salt mines on this topic, you guys come in and boom, everybody goes to the Reagan. It's it's especially valuable year over year. Yeah. So comparing your results. The one I is in the field or about to go in the field to last year's will be good compared to the year before is good period it's a little harder to compare from your survey to my survey because the work question wording is slightly different and sure. so um it we actually find the same basic dynamics so i'm confident that we're both tapping into the same thing but a one-to-one comparison is difficult because of the question wording uh, but what happened i think what happened was President Trump's campaign calculation in s- September of 2020 to say, I'm so frustrated with Millie and the other you know, generals who have criticized me. So it wasn't just, well, Millie hadn't criticized him per se, but some some former um, um, Trump officials had criticized him by that point. And it was obviously getting under President Trump's skin. And so, in, in September of 2020, he, he went after his own generals and mm-hmm. started criticizing his own generals. And he said, the rank and file are with me, but the generals, they're not. And that's because the generals like war and I don't want them to get into war. And the generals want war to sell weapons. And, you know, he made some pretty dramatic uh, charges that were uh, if you'll forgive me, very un-Reagan-esque, in, you know, it was sounded more like Reagan's critics than, mm. than the traditional Republican line. That created a permissive space, that when I talk about permissive space for, for people who might have been, you know, harboring anti-military sentiment to sort of say, okay, now I can, you know, if, if my president's saying it, now I can say it, you know. And He's a very influential uh, figure, President Trump, now former President Trump, but then President Trump, very influential in shaping Republican attitudes. So Republican mass tend to follow Mm -hmm. elite cues. And so there's no surprise that when he picked when he started that critique and then other Republican prominent voices, Tucker Carlson, perhaps most prominent of all, um, Echo it and reinforce it, then that drives down Republican Even support. even if I the think-
0: president, even if the president um, makes a distinction between, you know, those general officers are bums, but I like the military. So he, right. you know, and and
1: yeah, it yes, uh, he's trying to he's trying to draw a fine distinction. And I will say that from best practices in civil military relations, that's a very dangerous thing. Right. Game he's playing. There, uh, we'll you know set that aside for its impact. Um, one one of the things that the book demonstrates is that the public does not draw the fine distinctions that you and I <laughs> yeah. draw.
0: Yeah. So yeah.
1: between active and retired, between you know senior and junior, yes, in the abstract they might know about those differences, but they all blur, and it's very hard for them to spot the difference and. And that uh, parse their attitudes accordingly. So I think it had a general decline. And then, of course, once Trump lost in 2020, and it's the Biden administration, then it's free fire <laughs> for Republicans because you know attacking the, the DoD is attacking the Biden administration. Attacking DoD policies is attacking the Biden administration. So and you, we've so- reached this. Go ahead. Let me just say we've reached this really odd moment in American politics where we've made the military combatants in the culture war so that it's now acceptable to target the military to sh- you know shoot political fire at the military in what is essentially a culture war debate between two parties
0: so, so let's move let's move to that because I think uh, you're highlighting uh, President Trump and his administration and how that impacted in your judgment and uh, no doubt based on the polling, trust and confidence in the military. But there's also what's happening during the Biden administration. And, you know, while we have this, you know, as we're characterizing it before, um, elected officials, uh, thought leaders, the commentariat critiquing the military, uh, or is, you know, really essentially being um just stuck in the in the middle of the, the culture wars, that's not new, right? I mean a Clinton right. administration, for example, and you were doing this work in the nineties, uh, you had don't ask, don't tell, uh, which was highly controversial. And I think at the time viewed as kind of the social experimentation, um, of the, uh, using the military for social experimentation and, and, and essentially putting the front and center in the culture war. Is this so kind of with a historical lens, Peter, I mean, is this really different? Have we, or have we been down this road before?
1: we we have it's not entirely new nothing is new one of the things i've learned right i have collaborated with historians for the entirety of my professional career is never say this has never happened before <laughs> because yeah. there's always a historian can yeah. find it
0: yeah.
1: i mean it's the 75th anniversary of truman's decision to integrate african americans into the military hugely controversial roiled the senior brass very you know politically uh, divisive at least at the civil-military level divisive. Uh, but he did it and it persevered. And eventually, 75 years later, we've got the fruits of it. So there is there is a precedent for using the military, for civilians to use the military as the vanguard in pushing forward, um, say, civil rights for African-Americans. They, the, that was moving the country forward by integrating the military at a time when we still had Jim Crow. Uh, laws in the south so yes there's some precedent for it and in the 90s uh advocates who wanted to move faster in terms of integrating uh open uh, gays and lesbians in the service were critical of the military in particular critical of general powell for pushing back at that so there was some uh pushback but if you look the the more interesting comparison, uh, you know, Democrats criticizing the military—that's actually part of their DNA since Vietnam. So, uh, the where it was a better comparison would be how did Republicans handle when under President Obama they moved forward on on all these issues? Uh,
0: women in uh, combat would be a, a big women example. In combat
1: transgender late very late in the game uh, under Secretary Carter. Uh, these are they, they moved pretty far down the progressive path, the Obama administration in terms of policies. Republicans protested the policies, but did not target the military, per se, in the way that it's happened now.
0: Good interesting um, distinction. So whereas in your right to raise the Obama administration, I had a chance to, I, I was a staffer on Capitol Hill in the Armed Services Committee at the time, so I remember it well. Um, it it wasn't going after the critique wasn't going after uniformed active duty military people. It was for the most part relegated to the civilian side. And, and, and the critique was the president, his administration, his appointees uh, for advancing these policies. So that's an interesting shift that now the, the, the critique is now that the, the military has become, um, Almost kind of poisoned by this, and and therefore the institution right. is is somehow toxic or or um, not worthy of our trust and and support.
1: Right, and um, the evidence for it is 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 pretty thin. I think what your poll for the Reagan and, uh, Foundation poll from last year shows that when you ask Democrats to explain why uh, confidence has gone down, Democrats will give MSNBC po- talking points. Yeah. And when you ask Republicans why it's gone down, they'll give Fox News talking points. And so the critique has penetrated, at least among partisan audiences. But when, but there's not a lot of evidence to support that critique. So what's the evidence that um, the Biden administration is on a witch hunt to find extremists? Well, that's that one stand down from March or April 2021. <laughs> Two years ago, okay. How's the, wit- the quote-unquote witch hunt gone since then? Not much evidence for it, you know. Mm-hmm. That was that was an understandable response to a very, uh, you know, unprecedented. I'll, I'll say the attack on the Capitol on January sixth. That was unprecedented. No. That's a very unusual moment. This was an unusual response, but it hasn't turned into a witch hunt. Similarly, when you say, "What's the evidence of," you know, that the the military's gone "quote unquote" woke, and then they'll say, "Well, they're emphasizing diversity."
0: Mm-hmm. Well, the, you, yeah. the
1: military has to recruit from all walks of life.
0: No, it's uh, like the di training is the one that seems to get the attention of a lot of elected officials, right? I mean, that's yeah. that seems to yeah. get up. And
1: actually, my view on the uh, on this, yeah, is give it to us. In, in an organization as large as DOD, I am confident that somebody is overdoing it. In, in some capacity at any given point in time, an organization is large, you're gonna find somebody who's you know, o- overdoing it and you're probably gonna find folks who are underdoing it, who are not sufficiently as sensitive to how difficult it might be to be uh, a, per- a, a serviceman or woman of color in the post George Floyd moment. That's a difficult moment to be an American of color. And, and there probably were military Officials who didn't get that. Likewise, there's probably military officials who are overdoing uh, these issues today. But if you look at the the evidence in totality, um, it it probably doesn't support the most extreme critiques. And yet, the extreme critiques are penetrating and likely affecting public attitudes.
0: No doubt that I I hear that. Um, You know, another element in all of this i um, kind of going off script here a little bit, but for sure you, you, you have thoughts and, and views on it. You know, it's the legislation as well. So, you know, we're in a moment right now where perception or the reality is, right. where the department of defense is, uh, going to pay for, uh, service members to fly to, uh, a state, you know, for travel costs to, uh, get an abortion. Um, if they are, uh, in a state, which doesn't allow for, you know, in the post Roe v Wade world. Um, the Department of Defense is, you know, uh, providing, uh, right? They're about the Department of Defense providing disproportionate amount of uh, diversity, equity, inclusion training. So there is you know, a, a legislative language to pair that back to most, you know, appropriate balance on the, on you know, from the viewpoint of the legislator who's uh, uh, putting that, you know, such an amendment Forward and and you kind of have other uh, uh, examples in terms of whether the military should be paying uh, the medical expenses to transition for uh, for right. those seeking uh, uh, a transition for transgender. So you right now, reality or not, the reaction is playing out in the political branches with legislation right. moving forward. That is objective. That's real. That's not disproportionate. It's really happening. There's going to be a, you know a big debate. Usually, it's over the defense policy bill, but it can happen uh, in other uh, legislative vehicles. That absolutely, I would think, uh, contribute to the sort of uh, uh, con- you know issues that you're 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 measuring in terms of views of the American people on these issues.
1: Yes, and I let me just though, put a sharper point on on what you just said. We expect the military to salute and implement the law, even if, and or the policy, provided that the policy is legal. So the policy guidance and or the law, we expect the military to salute and implement that, even if they think it's a bad idea. So as long as it's lawful, the military is expected to to follow it. It could be lawful, but awful. (laughs) Doesn't matter. You're still supposed to do it. And take transgender policy. Just over the last six years, what the policy has been on that has flip flopped multiple times. It was one thing early in the Obama administration, it was a second thing late in the Obama administration. Then it became a third thing when Trump reversed it, and a fourth thing when Biden reversed the Trump reversal. And each time we expect the military to move out and implement it. And so we have to. We as civilians have to, therefore, treat this as something precious that w- that the military is willing to do. You know, the flip flop on a you know a policy of some consequence, uh, and the more pain we impose on them, you know, in political point scoring on that, I think that. That's to our detriment. That's the first sharper uh, you know, point I want to put on it. The second one is uh, in the abs, this, these are issues that Congress has the power to decide, as you point out by legislation. If they don't decide it, then the executive, so if they don't pass a law that says you, thou shalt do this or thou shalt not do that, it falls to the executive branch to implement the policy. And what got us into the current predicament which led to Senator Tuberfield's hold, which was the um, uh, post-Dobbs decision on uh, healthcare that you were alluding to, there was not legislative restrictions. There was a norm about how it was handled, but there was not a a legislative restriction that you could only do this or you had to do that. There was therefore some gray zone post-Dobbs and the DOD had a choice. they could have handled it quietly, just using the discretion that base commanders and, and service leaders have to handle these kinds of issues. The, all the time, members of the services are being moved from one place to another to accommodate family needs or special health care sure. needs, or, et cetera. So that stuff happens below the radar screen all the time. DOD could have handled this issue that way instead they elevated it to a pretty prominent
0: oh it's a yeah huge standoff this, this is a poli- a administration it, priority policy and
1: right it and, became yeah. a
0: poli- it became it became a culture
1: war rallying you know moment and then and here's the point for our our conversations at that point the military became hostages
0: yeah they're the, they're the political football here you know and it's exactly, going back and forth. Yes.
1: And and so and, like, and that's the problematic thing. the The policy debate is a legitimate one, and it's a legitimate. Policy Congress debate, could resolve it. But, Congress but it, could resolve this policy debate. In the meantime, though, we're hurting the military, and the
0: military, the the military is viewed, uh, and 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 it's impacting the perception right people have of the military. In my own sense, and this maybe have goes to you know Peter Fever's rules for healthy civil relationships or the relation civil relations, and that is, you know when the Congress or the administration, right? The, the executive branch and the legislative branch attempt to push a social policy that there is no consensus in our country or, or not even have to be consensus, but you know, overwhelming majority, when it's a divisive issue, you're going to hurt the military. right? Yeah. And, and probably the better conduct is, is, is to wait for, uh, that moment where you're approaching consensus. I, I, an example in my mind of that, and I'd love to get your reaction to it. When the Congress repealed "Don't Ask, Don't Tell" during the Obama administration, you know, we were at a point where the country, as a whole, kind of it felt it changed its mind. Yeah, it, ch- it changed its mind. Felt, hey, you know, we we should allow and 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 certainly it allow for gay people to be open in the military. And sure, there were pockets in the Congress and the country that felt that was a problem. Maybe they were concerned about unit cohesion, how it would work in terms of the military. Ultimately, the goal, right, is to make sure the military can can perform its core function, which is to protect and defend. But it seemed to me a moment where it was the appropriate time to legislate on the matter because it wasn't divisive. It didn't seem to be a political football. That seems to me like an a. a, a Maybe the paradigm of how to do deal with these tricky things is that naive, or you're not going to get to that point because rarely, you know, will people wait until there's you know sixty plus percent of the country uh, with agreement on an issue.
1: Well, I, when there's a strong military effect, effectiveness argument in favor of pushing forward, as there was seventy five years ago on integrating African Americans, uh, because World War II had proven that the arguments against integration were wrong. So uh, Truman pushed forward before there was a consensus on it. Uh, And then it was rough sledding. There were race riots in the military in the 60s and early 70s. So I I don't wanna pretend that you just make the decision all the problems go away. No, it was 70 years and we're probably still working through it today, but it was the right decision that Pushed the country forward because there was a strong military effectiveness argument underlying it, which is that we needed uh, the the human capital that was uh, resident in African Americans as well as uh, other all Americans basically to get them in the service. So I'd my my caveat to your rule or my friendly amendment is weigh the value of the the military effectiveness argument, and the second. Uh, I don't know whether this will be a friendly amendment, but having criticized DOD for elevating the policy issue that then triggered the, the standoff with Tumberville, I'll point out that I do have some sympathy for the pressure they felt under, which was today in 2023, we depend on women. In the military, we have to recruit women. Some of the caliber, some of the topmost officers and talent in the military are women. And we could not meet our recruiting targets without women. And the fear that the secretary had was that in the wake of Dobbs, if they waited until everyone figured out, you know, two years later, what does this mean for how we're going to implement health care for you know, service women who are in Alabama, say, a lot of military in Alabama. So what are we going to do with them? If we wait two years for that, the impact on recruiting could be um, quite negative. and we're already in a recruiting crisis. So we got to do whatever we can, you know to put down the brush fires before they become a raging fire that that consumes our recruiting capacity and so that what that drove Good, them to the, strong
0: this, point job we're with uh, in,
1: in hindsight, though, they should have socialized it with Congress more. And, uh, you know, that w- could they have persuaded Tuberville? No, but they might have done a better job of separating him from other, say, Republican hawks on the hill who say I'm with him on concerns about um, the pro life issue, but I also don't want to use this tool to hurt the military.
0: Yeah, uh, we're with Peter Fever, author of "Thanks for Your Service." Um, we'll get to the recruitment crisis uh, and kind of how your research and book informs in it, and perhaps uh, your thoughts on a, on a pathway uh, to get out of this crisis and 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 build the military we need. Uh, but before we get there, I want to on two two items. The first is in your chapter on politicization um, and your your framework on this uh, pie framework. I'd love yeah. for you to go through that. I thought it was a really smart and just kind of political science done right in my mind, in terms of how you organize, think about it. Um, the PI, the PI framework for politicization covers three issues. You're right. Partisanship, that's the P, use of institutional credibility, and then electoral interventions. Just got to take us through that and how that's the helpful construct to, to think through this.
1: Right, so that's actually Jim Goldby and Namara Carlin's uh, framework, and um, Jim was a, a central partner in this project throughout, and so that was easy to adopt it, but um, so PI stands for partisanship, which is, back up, this is saying that when we talk about the military as being uh, political or apolitical, that that terminology is problematic. Of course, the military is political in a bureaucratic politics sense, right? They're doing bureaucratic politics like every other bureaucracy. So, and you don't advance your career as an individual without having political skills and work in the system. So the military is political in that sense. They also have to be politically aware about what the president's trying to achieve and what are the pressures under him. They can't be blind to all of that They're operating in a political universe, so they have to be politically sensitive. They should not be partisan. And the Pi framework spells out ways in which they can fall off that horse and go from being politically sensitive to becoming partisan. And one of them is if, is just P, the partisanship. If the military becomes captured by a party so that uh, to be a member of this party is to be pro-military, to be pro-military is to be a member of this party, if you're in the military, you're a member of this party, you know, that kind of a close association. And there was some concern that that was where we were headed in the 90s, right? You know, the so-called republicanization of the military, which is something earlier work I had done with Dick Cohen had uh, drawn attention to. Um, ironically, one of the things of the last several years to include, you know, Senator Tuberville's hold is that I think the relationship between the Republican Party and the military is more complex today than it was 10 years ago. I mean,
0: you can find examples on either, either side. I mean, you want to make the argument that, you know, the military's gone Democratic, you can find your retireds and and and, right. and and others in the same direction on the Republican side. So, well,
1: I think I think one of the
0: things that we've seen is that
1: the military, which used to tend to think, okay, the Republicans have our back. They're going to boost our budget and they're going to defend us uh, against Democratic critiques. They might not be feeling that way uh, so much okay. in the last one or two years. And, you know, candidly, the the hold on all 300 of those general flag officers, man, uh, that that's changing the way senior military are viewing the Republican Party. And so, but partisanship is one element of politicization. The second one is, the use of institutional credibility, which is when military voices, particularly retired military voices, become more and more prominent in really partisan um, debates. Uh, Debates over DEI, for instance, but also uh, debates over Ukraine uh, or Iraq. And late in the Bush administration, by the late in in the Bush administration, civilians, who include President Bush, didn't have a lot of you know credibility to to sway people's views, and so the Bush administration was glad that General Dave Petraeus did still have credibility, uh, but that of course has the you know secondary, maybe unintended and negative effect of politicizing in a partisan way. And oh, co- you know, know the, the Democrats you, went after Dave Petraeus. No, no
0: doubt, you had a leg in the name of the organization, full page ad. MoveOn.org. MoveOn.org. General Petraeus. Yes,
1: mean? and and you had Senator Senator Clinton go after, uh, basically call him a liar, you know, in testimony.
0: Right. Oh and, yeah, um. So, so there was. I, I kind of put an asterisk on those because it's wartime and it's kind of core to their. It, it, it's. I could see how it could. Your point that it impacts trust and confidence and makes it partisan, but mm-hmm. you know that type of conduct, General Petraeus the commander in Iraq coming in and, and and making his case using his best professional military judgment before Senate congressional committees, I can kind of wrap my head around. Uh, well, yeah, we mi- had to. And, right, military, and, retired, you know, general and flag officer speaking at a political convention, you know, we well, seem to be- that's the third
1: category. Yeah, okay. go ahead. That's, okay, that's the E of Pi. That's electoral intervention, yeah. which is yeah. different from policy intervention, okay? Um, and this is where you, uh, the campaigns and both campaigns do it. Republican Democrats were equally guilty, uh, will trot out military uh, retired voices, because their first name is still general or admiral, right? And so in the mind's eye, in the public's eye, they might still be kind of military, they, and therefore enjoy the prestige of the nonpartisan military. But now here they're saying, look, this election's too important. You got to elect this person to be commander-in-chief.
0: Every four years, so, we seem to run into that election where it's too yes. important. We, each side has yeah. their lists. <laughs>
1: and it's uh, it's a tawdry spectacle, and it has the effect of politicizing uh, the military in a partisan way. It doesn't have a big effect on shifting voters' attitudes, but it works just enough so that in a tight election, campaigns are like, we can't give up any any tool. If we unilaterally disarm on this, our our opponents are going to be able to uh, take advantage and seal the march on us. So uh, they they keep doing it. I actually think we've crested. So I think 2012 was the high watermark in terms of numbers and luster of the names on both sides. 2016 was a low watermark in terms of that's, that's when the... Um, the, they went from just endorsing to actually criticizing. So you had Michael Flynn, retired three star, saying "lock her up, lock her right. up." Right. Know, that's the kind of attack job, uh, you know, attack dog role that's assigned to either the VP or to lower senators, you know, uh, and to give a military distinguished military uh, member like Mike Flynn that role. That was that was very partisan, and the reaction to that was quite negative. And so if you look at 2020, then the list was much smaller in 2020 than in 2016. Interesting. And I, I'd be surprised. I bet the list in 24 is even smaller. If you look at the the folks who let's say it's pre, Trump is the Republican nominee. The number of retired military who will endorse him, I think, in a public way, I would be I would expect it to be lower than what he was able to do in 20 or in 2016.
0: Interesting. Uh, one more item, uh, and then I want to talk about recruitment crisis and we'll wrap this conversation up. Um, early in the book, you talk about the generational divide over the military, yeah. uh, numbers I have here is 61% of the silent generation, which is 74 years and up expressed, quote, quite a lot of confidence in the military, uh, compared to 27% for millennials and 31% for Gen Z. You know, yeah. is it, is it, is it that. P, the I, the E, or something else that is driving uh, the, sil- the uh, millennials and Gen Z to really have this pretty low uh, right. level of support for the military?
1: Well, uh, this is one of those things where, you know, in my business, the last line of every paper is we need more funding for more research. So, you know, I I hope that other scholars keep tracking it because one question is, if, if you look who has the highest confidence in the military today? It's the survivors of the Vietnam War. That, if, if you had said that in 1960s, late 60s, no one would believe you. So <clears throat> the question is, is that a aging effect where you just get wiser, you know, in the same way that when I was, when you're young, everybody's a liberal and it's not when you get older, everyone's a conservative. I forget who said that. But Churchill, I, that. I believe. Yeah. Yeah. But um Maybe some confidence in institutions in the military is like that, uh, so that the younger generation is just sort of feeling their younger oats. But there's also a sense in which the younger generation has experienced a different story than older generations had. You know, they don't they can't remember Desert Storm. They can't remember the early success in Afghanistan, the early success in Iraq, to the extent that they have a memory of military in the field, it's 2021's really catastrophic, not catastrophic, but chaotic. We um
0: tragic just uh, with uh withdrawal from withdrawal Afghanistan. Yeah.
1: So the military, you know, to be clear, the military performed, the Air Force in particular, performed operationally in a superb way, but the result on the battlefield was catastrophic. You know, the, we well, and were not, and not
0: winning. I mean, you the, yes, the high exactly. water mark is the Gulf War. We we won that <laughs> handily. We you know, and we didn't occupy, and you know, it was kind of a military win and, and the, kind of the moral high ground, all all for us. Um, but so so I think part of it is that, I, but it, it's also the case that the younger generation has
1: lower trust in formal institutions across the board.
0: So all the board. of the
1: institutions, and so there there does fear to uh, appear to be a cohort effect that. Um,
0: could linger here so so pull it. pull that uh, kind of use that as a bridge as it were to uh, recruitment crisis and where the right. army but here's is, the problem those yeah. are the people who are recruiting right? exactly where i was going right so exactly. the army right now is, is 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 once again will uh not reach its recruiting goals and uh they're going to actually reduce uh their their targets for the incoming year in terms of what they're seeking in terms of active duty. So, you know, we're at a point where we thought we needed 580,000 active duty army. Now, the army is going to be in this 520 to 530, not because there was some strategic insight that said, oh, we need a smaller army. It's because we simply can't recruit. Right. Lots of reasons so, for this economy, health of our country, and young people, propensity to serve sort of thing. But there's got to be an element here, Peter, of a view of the military and people saying, I'm not interested.
1: Yes, I, you're absolutely right that confidence in the military is part of the story. It's not the number one factor, but it might be one that is more amenable to change than some of the other factors, right? The, the obesity crisis. Well, that's going to be tough to fix, but but maybe we can work on people's attitudes towards the military. And people with higher confidence in the military are more likely to recommend to others that they serve in the military. And so when confidence declines, you've got fewer people in the chorus encouraging young people to join. And that's a, that's a problem. And some of the reasons why people are not joining directly relate to confidence in the sense that particularly for women, there's a real concern about um, sexual assault, sexual harassment. And that also is linked to lower confidence in the military. And so there's a case where the mili- there's a genuine problem that the military has to grapple with and fix. They fix it, confidence will go up, and also recruitment will go up. But the long pole in the tent for recruitment is still the economy, is still the eligibility of people to serve. It's still even the lingering effects of COVID. And... So I won't abandon the all volunteer force and say it's hopeless until we see how recruitment works during a period of an economic downturn. And I don't, well, I don't think the shift to a draft, which is often used as a let's do that, and that will also boost public connection to the military because I will have the thing. I think that's a cure worse than the. Well, the AJ, I was going to hit
0: you on that. It's 50 years this year, um, in terms of when we went to the all volunteer force uh 1973 so um good to hear that you you still think that's the, the way to go and you know it, it's
1: last, in trouble it's it in trouble. trouble we and, need well, we to
0: fix it. well in, yeah. and and here particularly at the reagan institute look at 1978 79 it was pretty bad as well uh a priority for president reagan when he came to office was restore confidence and trust in the military um, yes not just in, in in terms of the troopers right the airmen sailors soldiers marines but also the country to restore that pride in the military and for him it wasn't trust confidence he talked about in terms of pride it worked and yes. that came uh you know in, in some very tangible ways budgets and and equipment and but also was a leader who said i i'm gonna personally invest in promoting this institution to the country uh, with all the trappings of of the president of the presidency, uh, right. We haven't had that in a while, have we?
1: Well, I do think we need another Reagan esque uh, leader who will take this on as part of his or her responsibility is to uh, restore American confidence fully in the in the military, but also to f- have the military focus on deservingness so that they deserve confidence. We don't just prop up with rah rah rooting. The military needs to be professionally competent, stay out of politics, be ethical in its treatment, uh, and grapple with some of these uh, uh, challenges that they, they do face. But uh, it may take a, um, a strong leader at the top. Remember a movie from early in Reagan administration, Stripes? And there the message was, if you fail mm-hmm. at everything else, you're, you can't even be a taxi driver, join the army. That's what you can do about four or five years later, you get Top Gun. Stripes to
0: Top Gun. Yeah. That's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, All right. Let's move to the lightning round again. Thank you, Peter Fever. Great discussion on your new book. Thanks for your service. So thanks for your book called thanks for your service. Um, Thank you. Here's where we ask all our guests to provide their favorite Reagan speech quote and book. What do you have to share?
1: I Well, I have to say my favorite Reagan book is Will The Peacemaker. I wanted to <laughs> troll him by mentioning something else, but he's my my former colleague, and uh, that's just a fine book,
0: but the, uh,
1: the, it's also an easy for me to pick my favorite speech, The Boys of Punta Hoc. Mm. I played Ronald Reagan in the D-Day staff ride that my group here at Duke did, and I got to deliver that speech, which was written by Peggy Noonan. and and delivered in by president reagan on june 6 1984 at the 40th anniversary it's one of the finest speeches of political oratory in the second half of the 20th century one of his finest um, and it was very moving to present it on That's the cliffs cool. of normandy and you know there's two quotes from that that i love the when it, he says these are the boys of Pointe du hoc these are the men who took the cliffs These are the champions who helped free a continent. These are the heroes who helped end a war. Just just the cadences are wonderful. But the, the other quote from that that is actually more timely to our moment is this. The men of Normandy had faith that what they were doing was right. Faith that they fought for all humanity. Faith that a just God would grant them mercy on this beachhead or on the next. It was the deep knowledge and pray God we have not lost it that there is a profound moral difference between the use of force for liberation and the use of force for conquest. And I can't think of a better summary of Mm. the contest we face today as a country between those who want to use force for conquest and they're out there and the United States, which is trying to use force for liberation.
0: Peter Fever, thank you for being on the show. Great quote.
1: Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to
0: let us know and share with a friend.